Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, you lovely wombats, your creepy tales fix. Today, I'm covering four Japanese folklore stories that will tickle that folklore funny bone. And these tales you've probably never heard of. These are stories way, way, way back. And of those, four are being shared today, brought from the past for your lovely ears. These stories were written in 1904 of all times. Goodness. For example, the Jikiniki, a ghost that eats corpses whole. Now, I've done my best to pronounce the Japanese wordings, but for any native speakers, I ask for your forgiveness because, you know, I'm doing what I can. So please enjoy today's episode without music, strictly in audiobook fashion. Let's go, you legends. Jikiniki. Once, when Muso Kokushi, a priest of the Zen sect, was journeying alone through the province of Mino, he lost his way in a mountain district where there was nobody to direct him. For a long time, he wandered about helplessly, and he was beginning to despair of finding shelter for the night, when he perceived, on top of a hill, lighted by the last rays of the sun, one of those little hermitages called Anjitsu which are built for solitary priests. It seemed to be in ruinous condition, but he hastened to it eagerly and found that it was inhabited by an aged priest, from whom he begged the favour of a night's lodging. This the old man harshly refused, but he directed Musso to a certain hamlet in the valley adjoining where lodging and food could be obtained. Musso found his way to the hamlet which consisted of less than a dozen farm cottages, and he was kindly received at the dwelling of the headman. Forty or fifty persons were assembled in the principal apartment. At the moment of Musso's arrival, where he was promptly supplied with food and bedding, being very tired, he lay down to rest at an early hour, but a little before midnight he was roused from his sleep by a sound of loud weeping in the next apartment. Presently, the sliding screens were gently pushed apart, and a young man, carrying a lighted lantern, entered the room, respectfully saluted him, and he said, Reverend Sir, it is my painful duty to tell you that I am now the responsible head of this house. Yesterday, I was only the eldest son, but when you came here, tired as you were, we did not wish that you should feel embarrassed in any way. Therefore, we do not tell you that father had died only a few hours before. The people whom you saw in the next room are the inhabitants of this village. They all assembled here to pay their last respects to the dead. And now they are going to another village about three miles off. For by our custom, no one of us may remain in this village during the night after a death has taken place. We make the proper offerings and prayers. Then we go away leaving the corpse alone. Strange things always happen in the house where a corpse has thus been left, so we think that it will be better for you to come away with us. We can find you good lodging in the other village, but perhaps, as you are a priest, you have no fear of demons or evil spirits, and if you are not afraid of being left alone with the body, you will be very welcome to the use of this poor house. However, I must tell you that nobody, except the priest, would dare to remain here tonight. Musso made answer. 
For your kind intention and your generous hospitality, I'm deeply grateful. But I am sorry that you did not tell me of your father's death when I came. For though I was a little tired, I certainly was not so tired that I should have found difficulty in doing my duty as a priest. Had you told me, I could have performed the service before your departure. As it is, I shall perform the service after you have gone away. And I shall stay by the body until morning. I do not know what you mean by the words about danger of staying here alone, but I am not afraid of ghosts or demons. Therefore, please, to feel no anxiety on my account. The young man appeared to be rejoiced by the assurances and expressed his gratitude in fitting words. Then the other members of the family and the folk assembled in the adjoining room, having been told of the priest's kind promises, came to thank him, after which the master of the house said, Now, reverend sir, much as we regret to leave you alone, we must bid you farewell. By the rule of our village, none of us can stay here after midnight. We beg, kind sir that you will take every care of your honourable body while we are unable to attend upon you. And if you happen to hear or see anything strange during our absence, please tell us of the matter when we return in the morning. All then left the house except the priest, who went to the room where the dead body was lying. The usual offerings had been set before the corpse and the small Buddhist lamp, Tomyo, was burning. The priest recited the service and performed the funeral ceremonies, after which he entered into meditation. So meditating he remained through several silent hours, and there was no sound in the deserted village. But when the hush of night was at its deepest, there, noiselessly, entered a shape, vague and vast, and in the same moment Musso found himself without power to move or speak. He saw that shape lift the corpse as with hands, devour it more quickly than a cat devours a rat, beginning at the head and eating everything, the hair and the bones and even the shroud, and the monstrous thing, having thus consumed the body, turned to the offerings and ate them also. Then it went away, as mysteriously as it had come. When the villagers returned next morning, they found the priest awaiting them at the door of the headman's dwelling. All in all, saluted him, and when they had entered and looked about the room, no one expressed any surprise at the disappearance of the dead body and the offerings. But the master of the house said to Musso, Reverend sir, you have probably seen unpleasant things during the night. All of us were anxious about you, but now we are very happy to find you alive and unharmed. Gladly we would have stayed with you, if it had been possible. But the law of our village, as I told you last evening, obliges us to quit our homes after a death has taken place and to leave the corpse alone. Whenever this law has been broken heretofore, some great misfortune has followed. Whenever it is obeyed, we find that the corpse and the offerings disappear during our absence. Perhaps you have seen the corpse. Then Musso told of the dim and awful shape that had entered the death chamber to devour the body and the offerings. No person seemed to be surprised by his narration, and the master of the house observed. What you've told us, reverend sir, agrees with what has been said, 
about this matter from ancient time. Musa then inquired, Does not the priest of the hill sometimes perform the funeral service for your dead? What priest? The young man asked, The priest who yesterday evening directed me to this village, answered Musa. I called at his anjitsu on the hill yonder. He refused me lodging, but told me the way here. The listeners looked at each other as in astonishment, and after a moment of silence, the master of the house said, Reverend sir, there is no priest, and there is no anjutsu on the hill. For the time of many generations, there has not been any resident priest in this neighborhood. Musa said nothing more on the subject, for it was evident that his kind hosts supposed him to have been deluded by some goblin. But after having bidden them farewell and obtained all necessary information as to his road, he determined to look again for the hermitage on the hill and so to ascertain whether he had really been deceived. He found the Anjitsu without any difficulty, and this time its aged occupant invited him to enter. When he had done so, the hermit humbly bowed down before him, exclaiming, Ah! I am ashamed. I am very much ashamed. I am exceedingly ashamed. You need not be ashamed for having refused me shelter, said Muso. You directed me to the village yonder, where I was very kindly treated, and I thank you for that favor. I can give no man shelter, the recluse made answer. And it is not for the refusal that I am ashamed. I am ashamed only that you should have seen me in my real shape. For it was I who devoured the corpse and the offering last night before your very eyes. No, reverend sir, that I am a jikiniki, an eater of human flesh. Have pity on me and suffer me to confess the secret fault by which I became reduced to this condition. A long, long time ago, I was a priest in this desolate region. There was no other priest for many leagues around. So in that time, the bodies of the mountain folk who died used to be brought here. Sometimes from great distances, in order that I might repeat over them the holy service. But I repeat the service. I perform the rite only as a matter of business. I thought only of the food and the clothes that my sacred profession enabled me to gain. And because of this selfish impiety, I was reborn immediately after my death, into the state of a chikiniki. Since then, I have been obliged to feed on the corpses of the people who die in this district. Every one of them I must devour in the way that you saw last night. Now, Reverend Sir, let me beseech you to perform a Sagaki service for me. Help me.
by your prayers, I entreat you, so that I may soon be able to escape from this horrible state of existence. No sooner had the hermit uttered this petition than he disappeared, and the hermitage also disappeared at the same instant. And so Muso Kokushi found himself kneeling alone in the high grass beside an ancient moss-grown tome of the form called Gorinishi, which seemed to be the tomb of a priest. Mujina On the Akasa Road in Tokyo, there is a slope called Kinokunizaki, which means the slope of the province of Ki. I do not know why it's called the slope of the province of Ki. On one side of this slope, you see an ancient moat, deep and very wide, with high green banks rising up to some place of gardens, and on the other side of the road extends the long and lofty walls of an imperial palace. Before the era of street lamps and jinrikishas, this neighborhood was very lonesome after dark, and belated pedestrians would go mile out of their way rather than mount the Kinokunizaka alone after sunset all because of the Mujina that used to walk there. The last man who saw the Mujina was an old merchant, Kyobashi Quarter, who died about 30 years ago. This is the story as he told it. One night, at late hour, he was hovering on the Kino Kunizaka when he perceived a woman crouching by the moat, all alone and weeping bitterly. Fearing that she intended to drown herself, he stopped to offer her any assistance or consolation in his power. She appeared to be a slight and graceful person, handsomely dressed, and her hair was arranged like that of a young girl of good family. Ojotsu! he exclaimed, approaching her. Ojotsu! Do not cry like that! Tell me what the trouble is, and if there be any way to help you, I shall be glad to help you. He really meant what he said, for he was a very kind man. But she continued to weep, hiding her face from him with one of her long sleeves. Ojotsu, he said again, as gently as he could. Ojotsu, please, please listen to me. This is no place for a young lady at night. Do not cry, I implore you. Only tell me how I may be of some help to you. Slowly, she rose up, but turned her back to him, and continued to moan and sob behind her sleeve. He laid his hand lightly upon her shoulder and pleaded, Ojotsu, 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 listen to me just for one little moment. Ojotsu, Ojotsu. Then that Ojotsu turned around and dropped her sleeve and stroked her face with her hand. And the man saw that she had no eyes or nose or mouth. And he screamed and ran away. He ran and ran, and all was black and empty before him. On and on he ran, never daring to look back. And at last he saw a lantern, so far away that it looked like the gleam of a firefly. And he made for it. It proved to be only the lantern of an iterant sobercellar, who had set down his stand by the roadside. But any light and any human companionship was good after that experience. And he flung himself down on the feet of the sobercellar, crying out, Ha! 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 Kore, kore! 
roughly exclaimed the sober man. What is the matter with you? Anybody hurt you? No, nobody hurt me, panted the other. Only... Only scared you? Queried the peddler unsympathetically. Robbers? No, not robbers, not robbers. Gasped the terrified man. I saw... I saw a woman by the moat, and she showed me... I cannot tell you what she showed me. <laughs> Was it anything like this that she showed you? Cried the sober man, stroking his own face, which therewith became like unto an egg. And simultaneously the light went out. A Dead Secret A long time ago in the province of Tamba, there lived a rich merchant named Inamuraya Gensuki. He had a daughter called Osono. As she was very clever and pretty, he thought it would be a pity to let her grow up with only such teaching as the country teachers could give her. So he sent her, in care of some trusty attendants, to Kyoto, that she might be trained in the polite accomplishments taught to the ladies of the capital. After she had thus been educated, she was married to a friend of her father's family, a merchant named Nagaraya, and she lived happily with him for nearly four years. They had one child, a boy, but Osono fell ill and died in the fourth year after her marriage. On the night after the funeral of Osono, her little son said that his mama had come back and was in the room upstairs. She had smiled at him but would not talk to him. So he became afraid and ran away. Then some of the family went upstairs to the room which had been Osono's, and they were startled to see, by the light of a small lamp, which had been kindled before a shrine in that room, was the figure of the dead mother. She appeared as if standing in front of a tansu, or chest of drawers, that still contained her ornaments and her wearing apparel. Her head and shoulders could be very distinctly seen, but from the waist downwards the figure thinned into invisibility. It was like an imperfect reflection of her, as transparent as a shadow on water. Then the folk were afraid, and left the room. Below they consulted together, and the mother of Osona's husband said, A woman is fond of her small things, and Osona was much attached to her belongings. Perhaps she has come back to look at them. Many dead persons will do that, unless the things be given to the parish temple. If we present Osona's robes and girdles to the temple, her spirit will probably find rest. It was agreed that this should be done as soon as possible. So on the following morning, the drawers were emptied and all of Osona's ornaments and dresses were taken to the temple. But she came back the next night and looked at the tansu as before. And she came back also on the night following and the night after that and every night. And the house became a house of fear. The mother of Osona's husband then went to the parish temple and told the chief's priests all that had happened and asked for ghostly counsel. The temple was a Zen temple, and the head priest was a learned old man known as Daigon Osho. He said, There must be something about which she is anxious in or near that tonsu. But we emptied all the drawers, replied the woman. There is nothing in the tonsu. Well, 
said Daigen Osho. Tonight I shall go to your house and keep watch in that room and see what can be done. You must give orders that no person shall enter the room while I am watching unless I call. After sundown, Daigen Osho went to that house and found the room made ready for him. He remained there alone, reading the sutras, and nothing appeared until after the hour of the rat. Then the figure of Osono suddenly outlined itself in front of the tansu. Her face had a wistful look, and she kept her eyes fixed upon the tansu. The priest uttered the holy formula prescribed in such cases, and then, addressing the figure by the kaimyo of Osono, said, I have come here in order to help you. Perhaps in that tansu there is something about which you have reason to feel anxious. Shall I try to find it for you? The shadow appeared to give assent by a slight motion of the head, and the priest, rising, opened the top drawer. It was empty. Successively, he opened the second, the third, and the fourth drawer. He searched carefully behind them, and beneath them, he carefully examined the interior of the chest. He found nothing, but the figure remained gazing as wistfully as before. What can she want? Hmm, thought the priest. Suddenly, it occurred to him that there might be something hidden under the paper with which the drawer was lined. He removed the lining of the first drawer. Nothing. He removed the lining of the second drawer and third drawers. Still, nothing. But under the lining of the lowermost drawer, he found a letter. Is this the thing about which you have been troubled? He asked. The shadow of the woman turned toward him her faint gaze fixed upon the letter. Shall I burn it for you? He asked. She bowed before him. It shall be burned in the temple this very morning. He promised. And no one shall read it except myself. The figure smiled and vanished. Dawn was breaking as the priest descended the stairs to find the family waiting anxiously below. Do not be anxious. He said to them, She will not reappear again. And she never did. The letter was burned. It was a love letter written to Osono in the time of her studies at Kyoto, but the priest alone knew what was in it, and the secret died with him. Dio Roku Zakura Usono Yono Dio Roku Zakura Saki Nikeri in Wakegori, a district of the province of Iyo, there is a very ancient and famous cherry tree called Dioroku Zakuro, or the cherry tree of the 16th day, because it blooms every year upon the 16th day of the first month by the old lunar calendar, and only upon that day. Thus, the time of its flowering is the period of great cold, though the natural habit of a cherry tree is to wait for the spring season before venturing to blossom. But the Jiroku Zakura blossoms with a life that is not, or at least that was not originally, its own. There is the ghost of a man in that tree. He was a samurai of Iyo, and the tree grew in his garden, and it used to flower at the usual time, that is to say, about the end of March or the beginning of April. 
He had played under the tree when he was a child, and his parents and grandparents and ancestors had hung to its blossoming branches, season after season, for more than a hundred years, bright strips of coloured paper inscribed with poems of praise. He himself became very old, outliving all his children, and there was nothing in the world left for him to love except that tree. And lo, in the summer of a certain year, the tree withered and died. Exceedingly, the old man sorrowed for his tree. Then kind neighbours found for him a young and beautiful cherry tree and planted it in his gardens, hoping thus to comfort him. And he thanked them and pretended to be glad. But really his heart was full of pain, for he had loved the old tree so well that nothing could have consoled him for the loss of it. At last there came to him a happy thought. He remembered a way by which the perishing tree might be saved. It was the sixteenth day of the first month. Along he went into his garden and bowed down before the withered tree and spoke to it, saying, Now, Dane, I beseech you, one more to bloom, because I'm going to die in your stead. For it's believed that one can really give away one's life to another person, or to a creature, or even to a tree, by the favor of the gods. And thus to transfer one's life is expressed by the term... Megawari Niyotatsu, to act as a substitute. Then under the tree he spread a white cloth and divers coverings, and sat down upon the coverings and performed harakiri, after the fashion of a samurai. And the ghost of him went into the tree and made it blossom in that same hour. And every year it still blooms on the sixteenth day of the first month in the season of snow. Okay, you amazing listeners, I hope you enjoyed these lighter folk story episodes. Let me know if you did, or, well, didn't, and I'll take it from there. If you want to reach me via email, it's www.storiesfablesghostlytales at gmail.com. If you're thinking, hey, this guy's alright, I want to support this fella, visit my Patreon page by going to www.patreon.com forward slash sfgt and you can support at any tier you like. I want to thank you existing patrons, though. Firstly, my old night tea titan, Matto Star, that is the cherry blossom of this podcast, sparkling with joy, colors, and hope, all of which he sends straight through to me so that I can deliver an episode every Monday. Thank you, Mr. Amazing Matto Star, for being brilliant, a shining beacon when it comes to supporting me and pushing the envelope on a technical level for this podcast. Cheers, my friend and our legend. My white tea warlord, Mr. Colossus, a.k.a. Lizard Bauer, the myth, the man, the legend. Thank you, mate, for supporting me for so long and for really being a stalwart figure for this podcast regarding support. You really are fantastic, mate. Cheers, man. Also, I want to thank my old grain forces and Patreon supporters I am lucky to have. Chad Warren, Just Heather, Sunshine Days, Juicebox Sandy, Peter Raffaelli, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, Alia Arcane, Paige Kramer, and Jane Gumnick. Thank you, you epically amazing people. Now, pour your tea, make it nice, ensure your flavoring is precise, like a story, let it flow, let the fables and tales take you home. It's these stories that bring us together, and old audio that reminds us of how we've changed. Say a while, have a listen. And as always, I hope to see you again.
Have a wonderful week, and I'll catch you next Monday. Cheers.